0: Today we continue a series in the Gospel of John. As John, an eyewitness, one of the apostles, one of Jesus' closest followers, tells stories of, in this portion of his Gospel, stories of the signs that Jesus performed that enlighten us to who Jesus is, to his identity. Today we read a a story in John chapter 9 uh, in which Jesus restores sight to a man who had been born blind. I myself have uh, had an experience receiving sight in my life. Uh, I was, uh, I'm colorblind. Technically, it's color deficient. And uh, about 12 years ago, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago, uh, there was some new technology with glasses that's supposed to help people that are colorblind or color deficient uh, to see colors. And so uh, my brother, uh, one of my brothers who's who's also color deficient, um, he bought a pair of those glasses. And we decided to kind of make an event of it because you watch the videos, like the promotional videos for this glasses company, and um, and there's pictures of these people putting them on and then just breaking down crying and so excited because they saw the world in a new way for the first time. We both had a little bit different experience than that. We decided uh, we were going to unveil these glasses, use them for the first time at the zoo. I believe we were in Seattle. Yeah, it must have been the Seattle Zoo. Uh, And we decided we're going to try these on for the first time and experience them out here where there's all these beautiful trees and animals, and this is going to be amazing. And my brother uh, tried them on first, and he was like, yeah, I mean, it looks a little different, but it wasn't that exciting to him, and... And I tried them on, uh, and I looked around in the trees. Everything looked a little bit brighter, but that can happen just with the color of a lens on a regular pair of glasses, and everything looked a little bit different and brighter until I'm walking behind this lady with really, like, like black hair, and I saw these streaks of color throughout her hair, like I had never seen, like, this red hair. And I found myself so mesmerized, wanting to just reach out and touch her hair, that I decided I should never wear these glasses again, and we returned them. Today we look at a story in which a man uh, for real receives sight. It's John chapter 9. We're actually going to read the whole of um, the text today, and uh, so we'll have some long portions of just reading. Feel free to pull out a Bible. There's some in the the seats in front of you if you'd like to. It'll be on the screen as well. John chapter 9. As, as he went along, Jesus said "Is as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might de- be displayed in him. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said no. He only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go wash, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked. I don't know, he replied. We'll start at the beginning, and there's a number, of, there's a, there's a lot in in this text, and we're going to read more today, so we won't be able to hit everything. Uh, but there's a number of significant things that I want to draw out of the text today. First of all, this question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? You see, in Israel, there was this understanding, this idea that suffering was associated with or connected to sin in a person's life. And so when there was an ailment, a sickness, a disability, or something like that, it was common to ask the question of, is this because of his sin? Or is this because of his parents' sin? You know, that's not unlike many religions of the world, or even really today, many ideas of spirituality. There's often this idea that if something wrong is, if something's wrong in my life, I've displeased the gods or the spirits or whatever people are looking towards with questions of that nature, and so I've got to do something better to remedy, right? And I'm not talking about blindness right now, but if things aren't going well in life, I just need to live a little bit better and karma will get better and, and come my way and that sort of thing, right? So this isn't an uncommon Thought process that they're asking about here. It was a common thought process in Israel for sure. And there is a little bit of grounding, a little bit of reason that they would feel that way. Is sin connected to suffering? In one respect, it is. In the opening of our Bibles, in the story of creation, we see a sinless, perfect world in which there is no pain or suffering. And as sin comes into the world, we see suffering also ushered into the world. So in this macro sense, in this large sense, we could say, yeah, there is a connection between sin and suffering. But on the micro level, on the I'm suffering, it's probably because I sinned and God is punishing me. I would be very careful to draw those applications. And in fact, in this text, when asked directly, is it his sin or the parents' sin, Jesus' responds, doesn't have to do with that. Instead, he says, the reason this man is blind uh, is that God's work might be on display for the world. Now, there is a Curious question there of causality. Does that mean God caused a child to be blind for all of his life until then he could be healed by Jesus? I don't read the text in that way at all. Instead, I would read this as God's work is displayed in this man's life by healing him when Jesus comes in contact with him. Uh, that there's not causality, it's not the result of sin. This man has had a hard life, and Jesus brings new opportunity and hope in his life. Jesus describes himself in this text as the light of the world. Uh, He speaks of, here, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And it's an interesting analogy. We spoke on it some last week, and you can look back at that text or that lesson if you'd like to. But Jesus, speaking of giving a man sight, for the first time a man will see the light of day. Jesus, the light of the world. And as the text goes on, we'll realize he doesn't only speak of physical sight, but also of spiritual light and sight in our lives. The means by which Jesus does this miracle is, uh, is fascinating to me. Uh, he spits on the dirt and makes mud out of it and then wipes it on a man's face. This is not like socially acceptable. I do not recommend emulating Jesus in this way. There's a lot we can learn from Jesus, but occasionally does things that I just don't think you should do in your life. And this is, this is one of those times, uh, At any rate, I think what's behind the scenes here uh, is um, a lot of prophecy and a lot of understanding in Israel of what the Messiah would do. And sight for the blind is one of those. And and there's all sorts of illusions and ideas in the minds of first century Israel. Jesus is living into the role of Messiah as Israel watches him interact. As he heals the man... It's curious to me that he doesn't do it right there on the spot, but he instead he sends this man on a little quest. Right, having rubbed this mud on his eyes, he says, "Now I want you to go to this pool." And interestingly, the name of the pool is "Sent." Uh, so this man is sent uh, to the place uh, that's called "Sent," and uh, and at that place, as he washes, he uh, receives a sight. I think this idea of sending is significant. You see, Jesus could have healed him then and there, but I think there was an intentionality in allowing this to be a more public display is this man goes to a public gathering place and receives his sight. We don't have any detail on how that happens. In most cases, when Jesus heals someone uh, with some sort of disability, they're leaping and celebrating and crowds gather and ask questions. And it's possible some of that happened, but certainly by the time he got home to a place where people recognized him, uh, people began asking questions. There's some confusion. Is this that man who was blind since birth could it be him and some people think yes and others think no that couldn't be him but he himself is claiming Jesus gave me sight now naturally when there's a stirring in Israel uh, the authorities show up to see what's happening and that's what comes next in our text beginning in verse 13 they brought to the uh, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how, how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe uh, that, excuse me, they still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked, is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. We know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. The second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you, are, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Let's begin with the conversation of the Pharisees. Just about every week we read a story about Jesus. He's having some sort of interaction with the Pharisees, the religious and the religious rulers of Israel. Uh, Very powerful people, and almost always I describe them as corrupt and missing the mark and uh, greedy and all of these sorts of things. And that is true of them, but I want to temper our understanding just a little bit. The Pharisees were also one of Israel's very last hopes. You see, Israel, once a thriving nation uh, with uh, power known to all of the world, uh, living in a beautiful land with all sorts of good food and wealth and all the things a nation would want, uh, continually turned their back on God. And because of that, began to slip from that stage in the world. Uh, eventually, um, Israel was divided and warring against itself. Babylon came and first captured Israel. By this time in history in the first century, uh, Rome is now the world power and Israel is a vassal state underneath the nation of Rome, the, the, the empire of Rome. And so they are an oppressed people. For hundreds of years, without their own king, without a nation, and yet in Israel is this story, these prophets that would come and say, but turn back to God and receive forgiveness. Find his blessing again, turn back to God. And Israel a number of times did and found some reprieve and some opportunity, but ultimately had kind of lost sight of any idea of reform that might bring about new hope for their nation. The Pharisees, though, were actually trying. You see, like, uh, we're going to talk about Sabbath in just a moment, and we talked about it a number of weeks ago in a text, um, but Sabbath, that had a number of laws in Old Testament Scripture, in the Mosaic Law, about how you were to take a day of rest and to be with God. The Pharisees had created some thousand 1500 laws surrounding the laws trying to purify israel you get they're trying to create this buffer that keeps israel from sin in hopes of restoring their place in the world and putting a king back on the throne and seeing prosperity and opportunity again so in some respects the intent of the pharisees is good and you can kind of see it in texts like this. They're they're digging into this story, trying to figure out who is this man Jesus. It's fascinating to me. In the last section, I forgot to mention it that they're actually divided on the nature of Jesus. Either he's a lawbreaker because he's breaking Sabbath, or he must be from God because of the signs he's perform, performing. And so, I don't think we often see this or think of the Pharisees in these terms. But there are glimpses that we see they are searching. They are wondering. And many of these laws and silly things they're doing, maybe behind them was a good intent, still misguided and still probably leading Israel in the wrong direction. But understand, they did want to see Israel restored to where they had been. So Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees. They start looking into it. One of the questions on the table is Sabbath law. Jesus uh, broke Sabbath law here. For instance, one of the laws, I think I've heard it described that he broke three Sabbath laws here. I'll just mention one. Uh, But one had to do with healing. If a person was injured and it was not a mortal wound, if their their life was not at risk, you weren't allowed to deal with it. That means if a bone was broken, you would wait until the next day to set it, okay? Uh, But, If it was life-threatening, you were allowed to engage. So Jesus has broken Sabbath law, uh, as he does quite a number of times, for different reasons and in different ways. Uh, He's pretty uninterested in the law that the Pharisees have created around the law that God intended. And many of these things, like John is doing throughout this section, are signs that we might know more of the nature of God in in the ways that Jesus engages Jesus has broken Sabbath law, and they're divided about his identity. Um, The man is called before the Pharisees and asked, who is Jesus? And we see a progression. Uh, apparently, he didn't know Jesus. Apparently, maybe he knew of him, but he earlier referenced uh, the man that they call Jesus. Notice how he's kind of speaking of another people. This, this He didn't know Jesus, uh, at least in, in any intimate way, prior to this, from what I can tell in the text. Uh, and, and we see this movement now. Uh, because of this healing, because of this experience, and in conversation, he comes to the conclusion, Jesus must be a prophet. His parents are called as witnesses, and they try not to speak too much, you see, because the risk is that they'd be thrown out of the synagogue, which in fact will happen to this man by the end of the story. Uh, But the synagogue was the hub of Israel israelite life in a town or in a village this is both religious and cultural hub of activity and so to be thrown out is to be really excommunicated from your people kicked out and 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 distanced from your people and so they answer uh, i don't know uh we don't we don't know how he was healed go and talk with him they come back to the man and say they, they're more accusatory at this point, right? They say, This man Jesus has to be a sinner, right? He is a sinner, and, and that's the accusation accusation they make to the man who's received his sight. He says, All I know is this, I was blind, but now I see. We sing a song today called Son of David. And uh, it's, it's one of my favorite songs. Years ago, as we were first starting church planning, one of our worship leaders led this song, and I had never heard it before. And I just sat and wept as I heard that song for the first time. The reason being, it actually tells a story of, God, of Jesus giving sight to to a blind man, but it's a different story. Uh, It's found in a different gospel, and it's a different, different circumstance. What's happening in that text, and what the song tells the story of, is a man who was blind and heard that Jesus was passing by. Jesus was near. Of course, he couldn't see Jesus, and he couldn't get up and go follow Jesus, so he finds himself sitting there calling out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Can you imagine the broken place this man is in as he cries out? Jesus' closest followers and many of the people watching say, will you just quiet that man down? What a disruption, right? This homeless beggar who can't see is continuing to disrupt our society. That's the attitude of the people around him. And yet he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus comes and restores his sight. The part in that song that makes me weep, that, that makes me emotional is the bridge in there. The whole song has been told in the first person, as though, you know, I I was blind, right? Uh, I, I, I cried out, Son of David, have mercy. But then in the bridge it says, I was blind, but now I see. And my mind in that moment moves from a man in the first century to myself. I was blind, but now I see. Jesus has given me sight. Revealed to me who his identity and the hope that I have in him. I was blind, but now I see is the is the the words of that song and the words of this man in our text today. You see, there's a blindness that uh, doesn't relate to our eyes at all instead of spiritual blindness, and our text finishes on that note in verse thirty five Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, "For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who will become and and those who see will become blind." Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, "What are we blind too?" Jesus, asked, Jesus said, "If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you have claimed that you can see, your guilt remains." Judgment. It's an interesting term. And Jesus says, I have come uh, for judgment. I have come into this world. It's in fact directly contradictory to a number of statements Jesus has made in the same gospel written by John, in which Jesus says, I didn't come to judge, but to give life or to heal and these sorts of ideas. He says here, I have come to judge. And the judgment he speaks of in this text is an interesting one. A judgment in which those that are broken and hurting and crying out to him are receiving sight, and a judgment in, in which those who claim to have sight and those with power to exert over others, speaking specifically at the Pharisees at this moment, are blinded from the hope and the good news that he is bringing in this world. You see, the question in this text and throughout the Gospel of John is, what do we believe about Jesus. In fact, John says at the end of his gospel, I have written this gospel, this account of Jesus' life. I've written this story of good news so that you would believe and have life in Jesus' name. So we see here the contrast between a man who receives his sight and believes in Jesus and the Pharisees who claim to be the ones with all religious sight and yet are completely blinded to what God is doing in this moment. The kingdom belongs to to the blind beggars, to the hurting, to those who will turn towards Jesus. That's what we see in this text. The man believes in Jesus. He says, I believe, and his response is to worship Jesus then and there. Worship is an interesting concept in Scripture. It certainly refers to what we do when we come together and sing songs, but biblically, worship is a much larger subject than that. Worship is described in Scripture as a life lived sacrificially. That's our spiritual act of worship. As we learn to see a blind beggar, as we learn to engage differently in our communities, this is worship. As we live sacrificially, as we live out the love of Christ in our communities, that is worship. In this moment, the man responds in worship. And great things happen when we learn to worship I, some of you might know, for the past year and a half or so, I've been in uh, this program called the Academy of Spiritual Formation. It's a two-year program. We go to a monastery in Oregon four times through that, and then we have all sorts of reading and other activities. One of the really neat things about the program has been a triad that I meet with. So I, the three of us, myself and two other pastors uh, here in the Northwest, um, meet monthly for about two and a half hours, and we do what's called spiritual direction. And it's kind of a practice of learning to listen to the voice of God through our experiences in community. So we're listening to what's the Spirit trying to speak into our lives um, as we reflect on particular moments or activities or events in our lives. And and one of my friends uh, here this last week said, um, I am experiencing overwhelming gratitude. He says, I'm driving in my car and I just start weeping because I'm so thankful. And, uh, and, And so we spent some time digging into that. Asking questions of it. And one of the things we were identifying is, there's this list, I believe it's in Galatians, um, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, all these things. These are things that the, the Spirit is producing in us, the fruit of the Spirit. These are growing in us as God brings about transformation. And I guess joy is the closest one to the gratitude he's describing. But we were we were firmly convinced of this. I mean, the Spirit is doing something powerful in you. I mean, can you imagine how it would change your daily interactions if you were just overwhelmed by thankfulness? How differently your your circumstances in life and the conversations and interactions you have would be if if gratitude was the place from which we were coming. And so we were so blessed to hear our friend in this place. And I asked him, when did this start? How How did this come about? Can you mark any moment or experience that kind of began this this uh this experience for you and he paused a moment and he said I hadn't thought about it but I think I can he said about a month and a half ago I I, I switched my commuting routine uh, as I drive to work I listened to worship music. I made a playlist of just some of the stuff we do on Sundays. Um, you know, in a role as a pastor, maybe you don't get to focus and worship in the same way that you would otherwise. And he said, so I decided to start taking my drive time uh, to do some of that. Now, this is not a new concept. If you grew up in the church, your youth minister at some point had you break all your secular CDs And you were only allowed to listen to Christian music for a while. And it was miserable and you hated it. At least I was miserable and I hated it when it happened to me. So the idea of listening to Christian music, this is not a new concept. But it was so fascinating to me. Uh, Three pastors of many years sitting there and re-realizing the power of worship. The power of just creating space in life to let God and the Spirit kind of speak into us and to hear his story of the deep, deep gratitude born of creating just a little bit more space for worship in his life. So this man not only received his sight that day, this blind man, not only does he receive his sight, but he receives something much greater, a posture of worship the beginning of a journey of transformation in his life. It's not just about physical blindness, but spiritual, that when his eyes were opened to who Jesus was, everything began to change. Where are you at on your journey? Are you ready to receive sight? And I think this question applies to all of us, however seasoned we are in Christian faith. Like, are you ready for that next revelation of who Jesus is? Are you ready to invite a little bit more transformation in life, that God's love would pour so fully into us that it overflows into the lives of others? The question today is of blindness. Are there things in your life that are clouding your vision from seeing God more clearly? Are there changes you might make? Is there a call you want to make? Son of David, have mercy on me. Give me sight to see more. As we close out today, we're going to um, do two things. We're going to be invited into that place of worship. If you guys want to start coming up and, and, and getting ready, the band's going to lead us in one more song today. Second thing we're going to do is take communion. And this is one of the ways that we as followers of Jesus uh, get to live lives of worship. Again, an act of worship. As we remember in the bread, Jesus' body broken for us. As we remember in the grape juice, his blood poured out for us. It's an act of worship. It's an act of remembrance. It's often called communion because we together get to declare who Jesus is. This is a, uh, a rhythm, uh, a pattern played out in our lives in which we get to come back to what is so central to us and what we believe about Jesus. If you'd like to take communion today, you're invited to. Uh, You don't have to, but anyone is welcome and invited to take communion this morning. After I pray, the band will begin playing for us, and you're welcome to get up. And today we're just going to take communion at the table. So as you get up there, take a piece of bread. Eat that and take the cup and drink that, and you're welcome to just leave the cups right there on the table. After you've taken communion, feel free to return to your seats, but let's stay standing for those of us that are able, and let's end in worship as we sing together. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity, and God, we pray you give us eyes to see in a spiritual sense. God, may we see your presence, may we know your presence in this place and a presence that goes beyond this. Spirit, reveal to us uh, where and how you are working in our lives uh, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Jesus, we're thankful for uh, your sacrifice, and so we remember, together we remember that today. Uh, God, we are, we are grateful uh, for all that you've done in us and for us. Um, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So may we be a people who turn our hearts to Jesus, who gives sight. With that, we'll conclude. Uh, We encourage you to stick around a few minutes, have a conversation. There's coffee and snacks in the lobby. Thanks for joining us. We pray that you have a blessed week. Can't wait to see you again soon.